Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn over to John chapter 4. We're kind of doing part 2 of something we started up last week. Uh, this, this chapter, almost the whole thing, chapter 4, is, is one long story of Jesus and his conversation with a woman in a region of Israel known as Samaria. Now, I don't want to re-preach everything that we went over last week. If you weren't here last week, I want to invite you to go to the website and see uh, this sermon that, that was preached last week. It'll sort of fill out some of the gaps that, that may be left for you after this morning. Hopefully not too many of those, but it, I think it would help you to appreciate what you're going to hear in, in the next little bit here. If you, if you go back and listen to what we talked about last week, uh, what, we, what we saw in, in brief was Jesus conversing with a woman who was an outcast even among outcasts. A woman who belonged to a people who was despised by their Jewish neighbors because of their religious syncretism. They had brought in uh, the religions of their neighbors and sort of melded in together with Jewish religion to create their own things. They were seen as unfaithful and unclean by their Jewish neighbors. They were were seen as sort of uh, enablers of the, the foreign power that had conquered Israel several hundred years before, so they were resented for that. But Jesus didn't see those distinctions. Jesus talked to this woman as one who was thirsty. As one who needed what he alone could offer to her. So we've seen this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman as a sort of uh, window into what it is Jesus came to offer with his life and death. We saw it as a, a way of seeing an overview of who, not just who Jesus is, but what Jesus and Jesus alone can offer to those who trust in him. And last week, the two things we tried to highlight were that Jesus offers an acceptance that you won't find anywhere else, an acceptance even for people who have been rejected by everyone else, even for those who have deserved the rejection that they've received. We saw that through the way Jesus received this woman that, that no one else wanted anything to do with. And then we saw what we really spent most time on was that Jesus offers satisfaction that we can't get anywhere else. Your desire to be satisfied is a natural one. The fact that you haven't felt satisfied is also very natural, given where you've turned for satisfaction. That's what we tried to unpack. And that Jesus came to bring the only thing that could really give satisfaction, and that is himself and what he offers by faith in him. We talked about the rivers of living water as a metaphor that Jesus uses for what he came to do in giving us himself, in reconnecting us to the God who made us and who made us to enjoy him forever. Now, one thing we raised last week and didn't get to, the thing that sets the table for us for this week, is a third thing Jesus came to offer that this passage tries to unpack for us. Jesus came to offer each of us a purpose. Really, the better way to say it is that he came to reconnect us with the purpose for which we were made. The purpose we've always had. The purpose has been ours whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not. The purpose for human existence. And that is to worship the God who made us. We were made to reflect the beauty and greatness of the God who made us. I don't know what you think of when you hear worship. It's common to think about uh, worship as something that you do. You know, a series of practices. Um, Especially if you've come from a more liturgical tradition. If, If you're a Christian, you were raised Christian. There's a lot of of very beautiful practices that are involved with with coming to a Sunday service. And and worship is the sitting up and the, or the standing up and the sitting down. It's the things recited at the right times. It's the smells. It's the, the taking of bread and wine. 
Or maybe if, you're, if, your, background is, if, if your background is Christian, but from a more evangelical Christian, then probably what you think of when you hear worship is you think of music, right? Worship is a certain kind of singing. Maybe even not just singing, but a certain kind of song written in a certain era, in the, something since the 1980s. There's worship music, right? What, what, what this passage is going to call us to do is to rethink about worship, though. To think about it as something much bigger than anything that you do, or that certainly much bigger than anything that you sing. But worship as more like a state of being, more like a, more like an inner reality. Worship as, and here's a way to say it: worship as an orientation towards something, as being drawn out towards something that you love or value. And here's the here's the reality. The reality is that all of us, given the way that the Bible understands worship, all of us are worshiping all the time, whether we recognize it or not. That really, worship is an act of love. Worship is the desires of our heart being projected or drawn out towards something. Whatever it is that you live for in an ultimate sense, that is the thing that you worship. I, I realized uh, last year that, that my understanding of worship is too narrow, that my understanding of idolatry, for example, is too narrow. And we talk a lot about idolatry as something bigger than just, than just uh, something in, in cultures that we think of as primitive, who have actual physical statues that you can see and touch and you can light candles for or bow down to. That idolatry is in us anytime we trust or look to something other than God for, for our happiness or our sense of satisfaction or security. Last year, I got to go to the Final Four. Kind of a bucket list thing for me and a buddy took me. Not a huge basketball fan, but it's the Final Four. I mean, it is one of the great events in American culture. And I got to go. And along the way, this buddy raised this question that I wasn't prepared to answer. He asked, do you think that in our love of sports, we're guilty of idolatry. We think about all the money that we spend on it. We were spending money here to go on this trip today. You know, we're going to eat and tickets cost money and there's gas to get down here. Think about the way we feel, you know, when, when we watch sports. Is this, is this idolatry? And my, my initial reaction was, well, I mean, I guess maybe it's possible, but surely I'm not worshiping an idol when I... When I Love my sports teams. I mean, I don't think of them as saving me. When I think about the teams that I love, I don't think that they're going to save me from death. I don't consciously worship them. They're not an idea or source of security for me. So no, they're not an idol. But I've been thinking about it a lot since then, the last year. I've been doing some reading on it and recognizing that my understanding of what an idol was, my understanding of what worship is, is too narrow. That the idols are a lot more than just what you think of as the thing that gives you significance or value in your life or the thing that's going to provide for you or pr- protect you from death. That idols also show up where your loves are. That worship is fundamentally not an idea, not a set of practices, but a set of desires, an orientation of the heart towards something ultimate. And in that sense, all of us are worshipers. It's who we are. It's built into us. It's what we were made for. 
The key is, what will we worship? What will we worship? And this is the understanding of worship Jesus unpacks for us today. And the purpose for which Jesus came to earth, what Jesus offers us according to our story today, is to reconnect us as worshipers, one way or the other, with the thing for which we were made, the thing we were made to worship, the person towards which our ultimate desires were meant to be directed. Ultimately, the the change from, I've come to bring you living water, that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again, to, you've got to worship me in spirit and in truth, is not a change of subject at all. What we want to see today is that Jesus' conversation about worship fits directly with what we talked about last week, that the way we worship God most fundamentally is to be satisfied in Him. To have hearts that want Him more than they want the things of this world that compete with Him. It's to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus wants this woman's thirst to be quenched, which is to say that He wants her worshiping God. And we want to understand how this works for us this morning. So what I want to do is unpack His statement on what worship is. That comes out in verses... Uh, really, especially in verses 23 and 24 in chapter 4. And then, and then the second part of the passage we're going to read this morning is another bit of a turn, but still within the same subject. It's a passage that, where Jesus talks about our calling not just to be worshipers of God, but to seek out other worshipers of God. It's a passage where we see the woman at the well turning from what she'd heard from Jesus to her friends to tell them about it. And then we see Jesus explaining what's going on to his disciples while he calls them to be about the harvest. So what we want to do is see how these different pieces that when we read them in here are probably going to sound like they're very different from each other. What we want to do today is see how they all fit together. That they all speak to a purpose for which we were made. And that it all has to do with worship. With a call to worship. To be worshipers and to seek worshipers. That's where we're headed this morning. I want to start by reading the story. So please, if you would, stand with me. In honor of God's word, as I read, I'm going to pick up our story in verse 19 of chapter 4 and then read through verse 42. This is the word of the Lord. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We're called to be worshipers. That's the first simple point we want to draw out of this story. Again, the story where we've picked up is right in the middle of a conversation that stretches on the beginning of this chapter. It's a conversation that starts with Jesus wanting water from a well, literal, physical water. Then Jesus suggesting that actually, if the woman that he's asked for water knew who he was, she would be asking him for water, not for physical water, but for the kind of water that can quench a thirst deep in her soul. What he did was try to expose this thirst to her by highlighting the fact that she'd been through five husbands already, and now she was on to a sixth man who wasn't even her husband. There was something in her that wasn't satisfied. She'd looked to men to satisfy her, and they hadn't. They couldn't carry the weight. They were broken cisterns. And so now she, perhaps not wanting him to go further into her life, to pry around anymore, maybe tries to change the subject. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You know this thing about me that I've never told you. What do you think about worship? So should we worship here on this mountain? You can almost see them there in Samaria, looking up at this mountain called Mount Gerizim, which would have been in sight. Should we worship here? like our fathers, the Samaritan fathers say, or should we worship in Jerusalem on that mountain, like your fathers say? She's trying to change the subject. She doesn't want him going any further. What she's missed, what Jesus recognizes, is that the issue of worship isn't a change of subject at all. Ultimately, what she had been doing by this marriage after marriage after marriage is worshiping this vision for her life that she'd pursued through men. Her worship hadn't filled her up. Jesus is going to show her another way. She just wants to talk about externals. Think of this a lot like the worship wars of the 1980s and 1990s. You know, maybe many of you you are too young to even remember there were any worship wars back then. But it was a big deal for a while to have an acoustic guitar as part of your worship service, right? It still is, I guess, in some places. And there was all this debate about the externals of worship, right? And what, what was qualified as God-honoring biblical worship. This is similar here, maybe even deeper here, though, because this had to do with not just, not just the physical acts of worship, but the sort of ethnicity behind it. 
the difference between Samaritans and Jews. There's many layers to this worship question that she raised. It makes sense that she'd want to raise it. I mean, in this era, worship was very tightly controlled based on external things. The Old Testament is full of regulations about when to do what, about feast days and and which animals to sacrifice when, and about what washings to do before you go into which chambers of this physical temple. Worship was very external in a lot of ways. What she's missed, though, and what Jesus won't let stand, is that even in the Old Testament, where there were all these physical regulations about worship, the point was never the physical, never the external. These things were signposts to something deeper, to an underlying spiritual issue. And Jesus knows, because he knew his Old Testament, that one of the biggest complaints that God had with his people in the prophets was that their worship had become nothing more than a sort of to-do list that they thought was okay so long as they did it in the right way, so long as the physical external things were all in place. But their hearts were unaffected. And that's the level Jesus wants to take this woman to. He changes the subject, but only slightly. She wants to know where to worship. He says, woman, let me tell you, where to worship, that's going away. Yes, he's sort of siding with the Jews on this one, that there is something unique about Jerusalem and about the promises that a Messiah would come through the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews, but woman, you're distracted here. The thing you need to notice is not where to worship, but how to worship. He tells her that a day is coming and is here, even now, because he is here. Where it matters not where you worship, but that you worship in spirit and in truth. Now that's the, that's the phrase that we want to pick up on this morning. We've got to understand what this is. We've got to understand it because here is the key to seeing worship not as something you do, not as something somewhere you go, or something that you give to God. It's not a way that you meet some need in God or win favor from God. Worship instead is an orientation of your life. It's a kind of state of being. We want to focus on it this morning, especially trying to understand what it is to worship in spirit and truth. This is the key. This is what Jesus says defines true worshipers. Did you notice that language in verse 23? God is seeking true worshipers, and true worshipers are those who worship in spirit and in truth. Then he says in verse 24, exact same thing. God is spirit, and therefore, you've got to worship him in spirit and truth. So there's something about God that implies we've got to come to him in spirit and in truth more clearly than we come to him at a particular place or with a particular set of external things. So what does it mean? What does spirit mean? What does truth mean here? That's what we've got to unpack before we can start driving it in for ourselves. So I'm going to start with spirit. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Well, thankfully, this isn't the first time we've seen this language in John, so we kind of know how John is, is using it here. Uh, we've seen from the beginning a difference drawn here in John between things that are merely of the flesh, merely outside, and things that are of the spirit or inside. Think just a couple chapters back. Uh, there was this story where Jesus comes to a very religious, devout Jewish man named Nicodemus who wants to know what it is to win God's favor, to be 
part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells him, you've got all your ducks in a row. On the outside, you look great. But the kingdom of God does not belong to people who have all the outside things in place. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are born from above, who are born, and here's where the spirit language comes in, who were born not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Okay, so Jesus is talking about what's already been said back in chapter 3. Only those who worship in spirit, only those who have received new life from God, only those who have benefited from something they couldn't just do for themselves can be true worshipers. That's one thing he means by spirit. It's on the inside and a gift from God. I think I think that it's another way of saying worshiping from the heart. That's often the way the Old Testament would describe it, describe what God was interested in. The heart for the Old Testament was sort of the center of your being, the inside, the, the, the essential person as opposed to the outside. Not an anti-body thing, but that, that even your body is tied up with your sense of who you are and what you're supposed to do, why you're here, what you love, what you desire, and that that center of who you are is what God cares about. That's what he wants, oriented towards him and not towards the things that he's made. So speaking of worship in spirit is pulling on that context and saying, God wants you to worship from the inside, from what you love, from what you are drawn to, what you appreciate. It's a matter of your affections. Another way to say it is that God doesn't want you checking him off a to-do list, just going through the motions that you're told to go through. He wants you. He wants your affections. He wants your worship. That's why the prophets, one in particular, called on Israel, God through the prophet called on Israel to rend your hearts and not your garments. You're sorry for the way you've behaved? Don't just tear your clothes as if you're just making a show of it. I want your hearts broken over your abandonment of me. I want your hearts oriented towards me and my promise to forgive you. That's what it is to worship in spirit. Here's another way to say the same thing. Worship in spirit is not worship as a means to some other end. You know, a lot of times, the the merely external, especially in the history of Israel, was thought of as a way to sort of get God on their side. That if we can do these things we're asked to do, then we'll scratch God's back, and then God will scratch our back, right? We pay him off, in a sense. We buy his favor. God is a means to some other end. Or, maybe in a little less sinister way, it's a duty. It's what we're called to. We're God's people. So this is what we do. And every year these feasts roll around and we do them. It's a duty that God has called us to. But God doesn't want worship as a means to an end. And he doesn't want worship as some sort of inevitable duty. He wants worship as the unavoidable, authentic, spontaneous response to who he is as an end in itself, as a matter of the affections. So this weekend, we celebrated my wife Lindsay's birthday. It's always one of our favorite weekends. She does not like to let us do for her. But on her birthday, the defenses fall down. And we get to celebrate her all weekend long. And so the boys, and, and our boys are getting older, so they're actually getting into it now, you know, and, and it's become a more of a full family thing. It was a really sweet weekend. 
But imagine if our celebration of her birthday had been merely out of a sense of duty, you know? It's mom's birthday, so we've got to do something. What are we going to do this year? What did we do last year? We don't want to do that again. What can we do this year? Would that honor her? It wouldn't honor her, right? What honors her is that the celebration of her is an end in itself. It is an unavoidable, inevitable expression of our affection for her. It's our opportunity to, to express that she is life to us, that, that there is joy in her that we can't help but express by celebrating her at this special time. There's, there's something, it, our celebration of her is a sen- in a sense a sort of worship of her in an appropriate sense. That is an end in itself and it is just the inevitable response of being around her all year. It engenders this in us whether we like it or not. It's not duty. It's not to get something else from her. It's just worship. That's the kind of worship that God is seeking. Worship in spirit because it's inevitable, because we love to, because we can't help but do it, because he's worth it. Now, this is where the in truth part comes in. So if worship in spirit is a worship where all of that we are, just our, our inner heart is oriented towards him, is drawn out to him, responds to him with this almost instinctive joy towards him, then the truth part comes in because truth is, how we, it, it is a reference to what we know about him. What inspires our worship, what it is that we're responding to, it, is the truth of who God is, what he has done for us, the fact that he's made us, the fact that everything we enjoy is a gift from him, the fact that despite our sin against him, he has come to us in Jesus, the fact that despite the fact we have offended him, he offers us cleansing and forgiveness and life. So it's, it's truth that we feast on, that then feeds the worship of our spirit. We don't want to worship something we don't know. We can't. Not the kind of worship that, that God is speaking of here. Worship in spirit only ever works when it's paired up with truth. And you could not know much about God and still know what's asked of you by your culture, for example. Israel was part of a culture in which for hundreds of years they practiced the same acts of worship, right? And you could be oriented into that as a child and taught the normal rhythms of their year to do the feastings at the right times and the sacrifices at the right times and the cleansings and what have you. And you could do all of that faithfully without knowing anything about the God who had given Israel its, its, its life, who had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, who had given them a promised land in this kingdom, who had made a covenant with them. They could know nothing about him and continue to do those external acts, right? But what God has said consistently through the whole Old Testament, what he's saying here again, is that the only worship I'm interested in is your heart. And the only way to get your heart where it needs to be is for you to feast on the truth about who I am. And in John, the truth about who he is is ultimately connected to Jesus. One of the things we've already seen and we're going to see a lot more later in this book is that Jesus, one of his favorite ways to describe himself is as the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. To worship in truth is to worship through Jesus. It is to see in him God's ultimate expression of love for us. It's to see in Jesus the ultimate source of forgiveness and redemption. To see in him the ultimate, clearest expression of God's character, of his beauty. To worship in spirit is to have a spirit that is motivated by the truth of who Jesus is. I think that's what he means by worship in spirit and in truth. Maybe this analogy will help. Think of it, think of the spirit part 
as the target, okay? Think of spirit as analogous to your heart, the sort of inner you, the real you, the essence of who you are. Think of truth as the arrow that shot at your heart. Truth is shot at the target. It pierces it. And then the final piece here is to think about God as the archer. One of my favorite things, we're not going to have time to really unpack this this morning, but one of my favorite pieces in this story is Jesus' sort of offhanded remark that God is seeking true worshipers. Think about that as the point of Jesus' ministry here. He came looking for you. That you are only ever aware of this truth of who God is and moved by it in your spirit or your heart because God has come for you. Because he wants to be your God. Because he wants to be your father. Because he wants to satisfy you in a way that nothing else ever has or ever could. God is seeking you. Now what would this look like in practice? I think that's what it means. That's what Jesus is calling for. A worship in spirit and in truth. This is what God cares about. He is seeking such people to worship him. But what would it look like for us? In the ideal sense, a perfect world, when this is really working well, I think what it would look like is for us to have joy and rest and gratitude in light of the promises God has made to us. It would look like us reading passages that describe His power and knowing, connecting on an inner level with the promise that His power, the power that hung the stars in place, that holds everything together right now, is a power that is directed towards us with love. The same power that made us is for us in Jesus. It would look like hearing that word and being moved by it, to rest in Him and not know fear, to trust that He will provide for us even when we can't see it. That's what a worship of Him in spirit would look like in response to that truth. It would look like enjoying the good things in this world as an extension of Him. Worshiping God in spirit and truth, the the call to being satisfied in Him as living water is not a call away from the beautiful, good things in this world. It's a call to use what's beautiful and good in this world as an inspiration to worship the God who gave it to us. It's a call to eat delicious food and know that we're not being distracted from God by our bodies when we enjoy delicious food. We're being reminded by it that God has given us taste buds, that he hasn't just given us grass to eat, but he's given us delicious carrot cake. That's what we had to celebrate Lindsay's birthday. He's given us cream cheese frosting. That, those experiences, the good gifts of God, are meant to be claimed for worship in spirit and in truth, not meant to be denied. And when we're worshiping Him well, that's what it looks like. The things that we love about our life remind us of God and help us to love Him more. It would look like joy in Him even when He doesn't give us what we would like. It would look like responding to sorrow differently than if He weren't our God and Father. It would mean saying with Habakkuk that I'll just leave you to read Habakkuk. Read, read the prophet Habakkuk. If you're in sorrow this morning and you, know what it, you want to know what it would look like for you to worship him despite your sorrow, read the final chapter of Habakkuk. 
If God be for us, nothing can stand against us. Worship in spirit and truth looks like that. A state of being, an orientation towards God, of our desires, our affections, our love. But I know, because I know myself and I know enough of you to know this isn't always what it looks like, right? This ideal world sounds great. How many of you are feasting on him in that way right now? So what I want to do to help you connect with this passage, even if you aren't living in the ideal world right now, is to talk about it on another level. Uh, And and I also want to refer you here to a a chapter on worship that has been really helpful to me uh, for, for 10 years plus. Also helpful again to me this week, trying to get my mind around this passage. It's a chapter that starts with this passage and then unpacks the nature of worship. It's in a book by John Piper called Desiring God. It's about 30 years old now. It's a wonderful book. I think there's a copy of it back on the resource table that you can have if you don't have a copy of it. There's a chapter in there on worship. Starts out with our passage today, unpacks it in in much the same way that I have, drawing from him. But then there's this one section in it where he talks about the different stages of worship. And I think you'll recognize yourself in one of these stages. He talks about the ideal stage that I've just described, where everything, your, your senses, your spiritual senses are alive to God's goodness to you in what you read and in what you experience, and everything is feeding this fire of worship in you. But then he talks about other stages where it is not that way. He talks about a second stage, one just below the sort of ideal stage, but also true worship. In that stage, in that stage, what you're experiencing is longing or desire. Not so much joy and fulfillment, but longing and desire. Think about Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. What Piper argues is that that's worship too. Because even though you aren't experiencing the joy that God has promised to you, you know in your sense of longing that he is the key to the joy you want to experience and aren't experiencing. Tomorrow is the first day of the Major League Baseball season, which is to say it's also the end of what I call the black period, in between football and the start of baseball. I just can't get into basketball. So it's over tomorrow. Now, uh, tomorrow I'll know something of the joy of fulfillment, right? It comes from watching my Braves take the field. But up until tomorrow, I've still been sort of worshiping, in a sense, by the fact that I haven't had anything fun to do when my kids are taking a nap on a Saturday afternoon. That's normally when I'd watch some sports, right? That's normally when the Braves will be on. And it's been a big black hole in my experience for the last two months. I had nothing, nothing like that to do. What Piper would say is that that was, a, in a sense, just my sense of lack or longing, just my recognition that there's something wonderfully fulfilling that I am missing out on right now was a way of worshiping that thing that's going to fulfill me later in its own way. Because I recognize I can't do without it. There's another stage, though, even lower than this one. Here's the way Piper puts it. The lowest stage of worship, where all genuine worship starts and where it often returns for a dark season is the barrenness of soul that scarcely feels any longing and yet is still granted the grace of repentant sorrow for having so little love. Maybe that's where you are. Friends, that can be worship too. 
if all you can muster right now is a sense of regret over the fact that you don't feel anything, that's the starting place of all genuine worship. And God is seeking true worshipers. God is seeking you, wherever you are, even if you're there. He is after you this morning, right now, in his word. Worship him in spirit and in truth. It's what you were made for. The only enemy to worship is not your lack of desire or a desire that's unmet. Those aren't enemies to worship. Those are the starting places to worship. The the enemy to worship, the only enemy that you need to fear is the enemy that would tell you you don't need anything. That you're good where you are. The enemy by which you might settle for something less than God, for some anesthesia in the moment of pleasure, of acquisition, the approval of other people. Don't replace God with the worship of something else, some cheap imitation, some broken cistern. That is what will keep you from worship in spirit and truth. If you're not knowing the reality for which you were made, you are not alone, friends. God will give you himself if you pursue him even in your dryness. But don't settle for something else. Of all things, don't do that. Now, that's why I wanted us to spend most of our time this morning. But I, don't want to, I wouldn't be true to this passage if I didn't use the last couple of minutes here to point you towards where it goes from here. I think the worship... Unpacking what worship is about is the key. But it's really interesting, isn't it? That right after this conversation about worship, the woman at the well leaves her jar, which had been her whole reason for coming, which had so preoccupied her in the story up to this point that she couldn't even see the deeper meaning Jesus was trying to tell her about. She was so locked in on getting water so she wouldn't have to keep coming back to this well over and over again. But now she's, she's had her priorities changed. Now she doesn't even remember to take her jar with her, much less much less hope for, a, for, for an end to these regular trips to the well, something has changed in her. And she rushes back to her friends and she starts telling them about this Jesus that she's encountered and calling them to come and see him. Then Jesus' disciples get back. They want to know what's been going on. Jesus is talking about not even needing food because of something that he's experienced. What is this food that he's had? And he says it's the food of doing the will of his Father, the one who sent him. And here's the connection. This is where I want to close. Here's the connection between our call to be worshipers and what we see happening here at the end of this chapter. Our call to be worshipers, one of the inevitable responses to the truth of who God is, to our satisfaction in Him, to our enjoyment of all that He offers us, is that it will make us want to overflow towards other people, to share Him with others. Jesus talks about the fact that now with His coming, the harvest is here. Yes, there's still sowing going on, but the reaping has started too. It's here. It is on. And there's a food or a reward in it that you won't get anywhere else. There is a kind of energy that comes from being about what God is about, which is seeking true worshipers in spirit and in truth. And the connection I want to leave you with this morning, the one I want you to notice, I think think that part is clear enough. Jesus is calling the disciples and each of us who read this story to be part of his mission, which is to call other people to worshiping God. But the connection between what worship actually is and our call to seek other worshipers, the thing I don't want you to miss, is that we'll only be effective in doing what Jesus is doing here 
in doing what the woman at the well is doing, in going after other people, if we have first feasted on God ourselves, unless we're worshiping in spirit and truth, we will never be effectively driven to seek other worshipers. It's only from the overflow of our experience of God that we can effectively call others to worship Him too. Our worship and our calling to seek worshipers go hand in hand. I think that's the point. I think that's why these two stories, or these two parts of the story, go together the way that they do. You ever feel guilty about your lack of evangelism? Have you ever noticed how powerless your guilt is to make you do any more evangelism? If you're a Christian here this morning and you're, you're thinking about you know, all the people who are in your life that don't know Jesus and how little you've actually engaged them on that, how little it comes up, how little they might even associate Jesus with you, probably feel some guilt about that, right? I think we all live with at least a low-grade sense that we should be more active. But haven't you noticed that guilt is just powerless? Every now and then, maybe it motivates me to have a conversation with somebody, but not very often at all. And so we just live with it. And I don't think we'll ever stop living with it until we're driven not by guilt over our need to do what we're supposed to do, sense of inevitable duty, but are driven instead by a sense of satisfaction in God, by our own feasting on all of His goodness, that we just can't help but share Him with other people. We have to. It's part of our worship. You see that connection? If worship is the inevitable response to all the goodness of who God is, then sharing Him with others and calling them to worship is part of that inevitable response. It is itself an act of worship. Jesus is going to say later on, a couple chapters down, John chapter 7, He's going to go back to His water imagery. He goes back to it and He says, Come to Me, all who are thirsty, and I will give you water. And out of you, He says, this is where He changes it up a little bit, out of you will flow streams of living water. John tells us he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So not only are you going to be satisfied, it's not about just you and Jesus sort of in a dark room enjoying each other, but out of you is going to flow life. Instead of sucking life from other people, you are going to give life to them because you can't contain it all. One of my favorite things to eat is banana pudding. I mean, any of you know that? Any of you have given me delicious banana pudding to eat? I'm kind of a connoisseur of it. It had been since I was a kid. It's the Baptist potlucks that we used to have. But my favorite banana pudding of all, I'm convinced it's the greatest banana pudding ever made, is my wife's banana pudding. It is amazing. We had it in our small group this last week. And I'm kind of an evangelist for it, to be honest. I rave about it to anybody who will listen. And I rave about it because I want my wife to be made much of. I want her skill as a pudding maker to be celebrated. But not only that, I really want you to taste how delicious it is. I want the joy that I have known for you. I don't talk about it as a duty, but as a natural overflow of my own satisfaction in it, of my own joy at the experience of eating it. And I think that is what Jesus calls us to, not just to be worshipers, but as an extension of our worship to seek other worshipers and not because we feel guilty, not because we have to or think it's what good Christians do, but because we can't help it. He is life to us and we want others to know life and so we take him to them. Father, help us to know how to do it.
It sounds great on paper. It is not our normal experience. And the gap between what we have heard as true this morning and what we experience as true in our lives is a gap that we can't cross in our own strength. So, Father, give us yourself. Quench our thirst. Help us to be satisfied in Jesus so that we can't help but seek others with him, with his message, with his person, with the sweetness of knowing him and enjoying him forever. We know it's what you want. We want to be part of what you're doing. So give us the motivation by our own enjoyment of you that won't fade. Give us fruit from this ministry. Give us the joy of seeing others come to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.